Welcome to the Insights Podcast with Don Mills and David Campbell. I'm Don Mills, and we're going to talk a little bit about rural development today, which has always been a challenge in Atlantic Canada, as people probably now know, because we've been talking about it long enough, is we have a disproportional high percentage of the population in Atlantic Canada that lives in rural communities. And I would define rural communities as communities less than 5,000. That's the Stats Canada threshold that they count for urban versus rural. And uh, David, you probably have some of the numbers, but uh, you know we have at least twice as many people living in rural communities compared to the rest of the country. That's right. In 2016, across the country, only 18.7% of the population lived in rural areas. And in uh, Prince Edward Island, it was 55%. In New Brunswick, it was 51%. Nova Scotia, 43%. And Newfoundland and Labrador, 42%. So more than double, well over double across the region. And the other thing to point out is that is that New Brunswick in particular had a higher urbanization rate or more people living in urban areas in the 70s than it does today. So this notion of Canada becoming ever more urban actually has not taken place in, in Prince Edward Island or New Brunswick. I, I haven't seen the long-term numbers for Nova Scotia, but it's pretty similar. So that's the reality is we're not getting much more urban. People are choosing to live in rural areas. Sometimes they're within driving distance of the urban center. Uh, but at the end of the day, yeah, we've got, this is a specific challenge in Atlantic Canada because we're among the most rural regions in all of North America. And I think the, uh, the you know, the question is, why did we get to this point? The, the, the simplest answer, I think, is the fact that our population really has not been growing at the same pace as the rest of the country. And uh, what we know for certain is that uh, most population growth ends up in urban urban areas. So it's not a question of having too many rural people. It's, uh, it's really a question of not having enough urban people. And uh, population growth is a really one of the answers to growing our urban population in Atlantic Canada. And by the way, uh, numbers support that. It's happening now. Um, maybe not quite as fast as we want it, but it certainly is happening. But it does nonetheless leave us with a challenge that is unique in Canada is how do we have the rural communities um, more economically successful? Because most of them, as you know, rely on natural resource industries, many of which, like fishing and farming and forestry, tend to be seasonal, which means, you know, people only have access to, you know, part-time work, not full-time work. And that's not a good recipe for growing the GDP in a province when you have a lot of people sitting on the sideline for large parts of the year. Yeah, I think that's right. And you know, I've been following this issue for a number of years, and I think part of the challenge is, is that government kind of, I think, gave up on rural Atlantic Canada. And I don't want to be too um, critical or harsh about that. But if you go back to the 70s and even the 80s in some uh, areas, a place like Dorchester, New Brunswick, there was a whole strategy. There was a there was going to be a industrial park down there. There was going to be a floating wharf in the Bay of Fundy. There was going to be uh, there was a, a mining potential mining project down there. There were three or four large manufacturers. Uh, there was a, a, an ordnance manufacturer and a window and door manufacturer. So this was Little Dorchester, thirty five or forty minutes outside of Moncton, uh, and now there's nothing there. 
none of those operations. There's one uh, federal uh, prison out there, but there's no economic development to speak of out there. So I think part of the problem is that government didn't heed your message earlier that most growth is going to be in urban areas, but that doesn't mean you completely give up on your rural areas and your smaller, your under 5,000 population, because now we're in a situation where almost all of these communities are shedding population. They're much, much older than the urban centers and their potential for growth has been much impacted because there hasn't been that much focus on, uh, on economic development, in my opinion, in these rural areas across Atlantic Canada. Now, that's not to say that there aren't many rural communities that are really quite successful. And we're going to talk with John Bragg uh, in this podcast about Oxford, Nova Scotia, which is a very successful rural community. But why is it successful? It's successful because there's a local entrepreneur who's decided that that's going to be his base of business. And he was prepared and willing to invest in that community. And uh, the numbers are very impressive, as people will hear in in the interview, about what they have achieved. Uh, 600 people working for the Oxford group of companies in in that uh, town. Um, And I looked at the population numbers for Oxford, Nova Scotia. They're increasing. Uh, one One of the very few rural areas in this region that are increasing. But clearly... For rural communities to be successful, they need at least one economic focus. They need, you know, one entrepreneur or one business that can sustain year-round employment. And that's always been the challenge. There are many good examples around the region of communities that are small but successful because they have a local industry or business that is doing well. And most of them, by the way, seem to be export-oriented, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. I think if you if these communities are going to devolve into just local services, healthcare, home care, uh, you know, and trying to serve the local population, I think it's not going to solve the challenge. I think every community or region needs one or more export industries or one or more, as you say, entrepreneurs that are committed to building their business in the area, even if it's independent of some underlying economic industry or asset that a region has. But I do think that the export-oriented focus is is one we shouldn't lose. Uh, I remember when the pulp mill uh, shut down in Dalhousie after being in business, I think, 98 years, some of the language up there was, well, this is probably good. We need to diversify the economy. It's not good to be reliant on one industry. And I remember thinking to myself, that's probably the silliest thing I've ever heard. Now, having said that, sure, in a perfect world, you'd have a highly diversified economy. But to say it's a good thing that you lose your pulp mill and 400 high paying jobs. And of course, Dalhousie now has a median age of 63, uh, is shrinking in terms of population and has very, very uh, weak uh, prospects economically. So no, that you have to have, you're absolutely right, Don, you have to have an anchor employer, an anchor industry, something that drives the private sector economy, and then the service industry uh, builds around that, including public sector services. Yeah, there are, there are plenty, again, good examples. Cedar uh, Cobb in Newfoundland has put a lot of money into Fogel Island. I was surprised, but, you know, they've got over 2,000 people living on Fogel Island. Who knew? Um, you know, so a pretty good-sized small community. Um, 
and I think she's making a difference, obviously, but she put all her own money in it, and which leads me to another problem. I think that John Bragg uh, identifies in our conversation that we had is that if you're in a rural community, it's much harder to get financing uh, to um, fund um, a, a business idea because banks certainly look at rural areas differently than urban areas in terms of whether or not it's viable to invest in those communities. <clears throat> and as John points out, and I think it's a very important issue, uh, is the access to financing really has to be considered. If banks aren't un are unwilling to uh, finance uh, expansions like John Braghead, for instance, then it's going to be hard for rural uh, communities to be successful. Uh, in John's case, he quite uh, clearly um, uh, points to um, loans that he got from the province, and he's very proud to say that he paid them all back as a, as a way for him to expand his business. And one of the big things that he did in his business uh, to make it year-round employment and not seasonal employment, remember, he's into, you know, <laughs> blueberries and carrots. So you would think that would be a seasonal business. Well, he built, uh, um, you know, a major uh, freezing um, operation to provide uh, year-round employment in terms of processing uh, blueberries and carrots. But he wouldn't have been able to do that without a loan from the provincial government. So he makes a very good case that if we're interested in rural development, we're going to have to support it with access to capital uh, in a different way than if you're in a more heavily populated uh, urban area. So I think that uh, that's a very important point. Absolutely. The banks are saying if uh, we finance a warehouse in Brampton, and you go under, the chances that some other company will come in and pick that building up are very high. Whereas if we finance that same warehouse in Oxford and it goes under, we'll never, ever fill it again. So I understand that view, but all that means to me is that there's a public interest in making sure that there's access. So either you have a public bank or you have some sort of organization that has a mandate uh, or you do it through government or whatever. But I mean, in the case of Bragg and others, you know, these are repayable loans uh, and so I think it's a, it's a perfectly legitimate role for government because, again, come back to what's the alternative. If you can't get private financing, if it's not a level playing field, you know, these communities, there's just one more strike against them. Uh, that's right. And as we mentioned in our last podcast, there's probably well over a billion dollars being spent on economic development in this region. You have to ask yourself if some of that money shouldn't be put aside for support of rural development uh, financing projects in rural development uh, uh, areas. And uh, so, you know, I think we need to have a discussion about how the economic development money is being used. And I know that there are funds that are going to certain businesses to support their efforts. But the question is, you know, what's the distribution between smaller communities like Oxford and the larger ones like the cities uh, in terms of having a share of that money? And I, though those, are, those are questions that need to be answered in my view. These are very thorny questions because basically the way the funding programs are set, almost all of them, it's not based on need, it's based on eligibility. So if you come into government and say, I'm going to hire 100 people uh, and I'm going to have this size of payroll and I'm going to have these kind of markets, they'll say, okay, you're eligible for this kind of funding. They don't actually say, do you need the money? 
right? And I think that's it's very interesting, but it's true, uh, you know. And I, again, I'm being simplistic, but for the most part, it's not because in many cases the firms that need the money actually have the weakest business model and are the most risk for government. So I do think that's one area that we have to think about, particularly the urban-rural uh, distribution, because governments still are reluctant to put money into highly speculative projects. Uh, I interviewed Brickland for another one of our podcasts, Malcolm Bricklin, uh, and in that case in the 70s, the government put in the entire capital uh, needed to start that plant, and of course that plant went under in a few years. So there's a, there's a lot of reluctance to put money into highly speculative projects, but the what happens is then you get these rural projects, uh, you know that that maybe have a little bit higher risk and and it's more difficult for government to invest. So I do think we have to have that conversation, and I think John Bragg has some good ideas there in your conversation with him. But at the end of the day, I come back to the issue of we need to have some level of economic development in rural areas because 40, 40, 45 percent of our population lives in rural areas. Uh, that's right, and so. Uh... The conversation with John Bragg, I think, is an interesting one on a number of fronts. First of all, he's a very private person, as I think most people know. You don't really hear from John very often. Um, and he's a very modest, uh, humble person. Um, but his story is a unique one uh, from a couple of perspectives. Um, most people know him for two of his bigger operations, Eastlink and Oxford Foods, um, he told me that uh, he's the largest uh, producer of blueberries in the world, and um, he's something like the second large, largest carrot producer in, in North America. Those are pretty big uh, claims, and uh, obviously important. But people may not know this, but uh, John Bragg's Eastlink was the first cable company to figure out how to deliver phone service over over cable. And um, they were the first company in Canada to bundle services, the very first one. All the big ones, as you'll see in the interview, spent millions, tens of millions of dollars trying to figure it out. And uh, he's very proud of the fact that Eastlink, with a much smaller budget, with a lot more innovation, was able to figure that out and uh, was really a pioneer in bringing the telecommunication services uh, together. So... A very interesting uh, individual. I think that people will enjoy this interview, a rare interview with John Bragg, and here he is. I'm very pleased to be joined on today's Insights podcast by John Bragg. John's an icon in the Atlantic uh, Canadian business community and chairman and CEO of the Bragg Group of Companies. John, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you, Don. Uh, you've had a an illustrious business career. Can you tell us how it all started? Well, I, th I think I was born into an entrepreneurial family. Uh, my my great-grandfather built a country store in the village of Collingwood, and uh, so his son and then his grandson, my father, were entrepreneurs. So uh, it's in my genes, I guess. <laughs> So the Bragg Group of Companies includes, obviously, uh, Oxford Foods, uh, Eastlink, and Inland Technologies. How many employees in total does the Bragg Group currently employ, John? You know, I'm asked that question, and, and we don't measure our success by employees, but, uh, but I'm told that it's six or 7,000 employees in total. 
Well, that's a pretty significant group of people to to uh, take care of, basically. Uh, I know that you have interests uh, across uh, the country and, and into the United States. Can you talk to us a little bit about uh, where you're currently uh, uh, doing business? Well, we are, uh, you know, in our cable business or communication business. Uh, we're from Newfoundland to Delta, B.C., and uh, recently I saw a map of our fiber, and it's really quite impressive to see that we have fiber connections to Chicago, Boston, all, all through the U.S. And, and throughout Canada. And so we're in towns in northern Ontario, southwestern Ontario, southeastern Ontario, uh, Alberta, and Delta, B.C., and the Sunshine Coast, and, and rural Newfoundland. So, uh, of course, our home base is, is uh, Nova Scotia and PEI. So that's in the communication business. In our uh, de-icing business, we're in 64 airports, primarily in the U.S., but some in Canada and a couple of locations uh, in Europe. Uh, but uh, we're a North American company. Then in the food business, we have operations in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, uh, and, and a significant farm and processing facility in Maine. So, uh, you know, we, we think of ourselves as a North American-based uh, operation, with headquarters, I might say, in <laughs> Oxford and Truro yeah, and exactly. Halifax. Exactly. Now, I'm told that you are the biggest... Uh, blueberry uh, operator in the world. Is that true? I think it might be true. I think, uh, uh, you know, we're certainly the largest wild blueberry grower, which would include uh, a first cousin species in Europe. Uh, and then if you uh, include the cultivated industry, which is high bush, there wouldn't be anybody with the acreage and the tonnage that we have. So, so I think it's fair to say that we're the the largest grower and processor of, of blueberries in the world. It's very impressive. Uh, a lot of people probably do not know about your pioneering work in the telecommunications industry. Eastlink was the first cable company in Canada to figure out how to deliver telephone services over cable and the first company to offer bundled services that include television, internet, cable, and wireless services. Uh, what led you down the path to become an integrated telecommunications company? Well, I think certainly uh, some innovative employees that, that uh, uh, felt they knew how to do this, engineers with, with some very uh, innovative ideas. But as, a, as an owner-manager, uh, I, of course, didn't know anything about the technology, but we do have a philosophy of innovation. Uh, in our wild blueberry business, you know, we've taken it from a cottage industry to a very sophisticated uh, industry. And so we take that innovation background and philosophy to the cable business. And uh, so when our guys said, can we try this and try that? We said, sure, go for it. Of course, with a limited budget, we didn't have a big budget, but, but that made them be more innovative. And, and, and quite successfully, very successful. Well, as I understand it, some of the bigger cable companies tried to do it and failed and spent a lot of money trying to 
figure this out, but you figured it out. Yes, we had we had one of our competitors who said they spent seventy five million dollars and gave up on it, and uh, and I think some of the bigger ones still had maybe spent more than that. And it was kind of interesting as we were developing and introducing this, the public companies that are in the cable business were saying it couldn't be done, it couldn't be scaled because they were talking to their shareholders and the investment people. And if they weren't doing it, they had to say why. And, and the why was, well, it couldn't be done when all the time we were doing it and and we kind of swore our employees to secrecy and saying, look, we're doing this, let's not rock the boat and see if we can't get an advantage. What does the recent purchase of Shaw by Rogers mean for Eastlink? Well, we've been trying to figure that out. Uh, I don't think <laughs> it means a lot, uh, although you know we're monitoring it. Will there be uh, some uh, CRTC might insist on some uh, spinning off of assets one way or another, which we'd be interested. But we really we're not holding our breath on any of that. Well, there was a recent decision, I think, this past week uh, to open up uh, the uh, internet uh, services to smaller companies. What impact will that have on your company? The, the, the most recent one uh, has to do with wireless rather than internet. Oh, yes, right. And, and uh, so we think the decision is positive, although... Uh, you know, we also think that it's going to take some time to implement it. Uh, the The decision said that the large companies have to have to give smaller uh, companies that are already in the business, like Eastlink, that are already in wireless, have already made an investment in infrastructure, and that they have to give us access to to their uh, to their facilities. So on the surface, that's positive, but they also said that the price that the large companies charge for that will be negotiated. So it wouldn't surprise me if we're still negotiating four years from now. <laughs> um, throughout your career, you, you have operated your companies from Oxford, Nova Scotia, and recently you completed a new headquarter building for your group of businesses there. Can you talk about the challenges of operating such a big business in a relatively small rural community like Oxford? Well, there, there are certainly challenges, but there are also some, some great advantages. I suppose the challenge would be, uh, for instance, if you were trying to hire a chartered accountant at Eastlink in Halifax, we might have 10 applications for every one that we would get in Oxford. However, we find that once we attract somebody to Oxford and rural living, uh, they don't leave. Uh, the quality of life is great. And so we've built a very solid team of very competent people who, who basically have chosen to live in rural Nova Scotia. And, and once they've made that decision, uh, they're not going to leave, especially if they're treated well. And so... So there's advantages and disadvantages, but uh, you know we're an hour and five minutes from the Halifax airport. We're an hour and a half to downtown. We're less than an hour to Moncton. Uh, 
we'd like to say that uh, everything in the Maritimes revolves around Oxford. So, so <laughs> it's really not not that out of the way. It, and so, yeah, advantages and disadvantages, but on on the whole, uh, you know, and we don't waste time going to lunch with with uh, you know whoever calls you up and wants you to come to lunch. Well. If you want to have lunch with us, come in, bring your paper bag and come have lunch with us. And, and so it's a different style. Uh, uh, how many employees are currently employed uh, for you in the, in Oxford? In, in the Oxford facility, we would say that we have 600 full-time employees, and then we'd have maybe another 100 seasonal ones. But in our food group, which would include operations in Maine and northern New Brunswick, we'd have 11 or 1,200. So that's a big, you're a big employer in, in the Cumberland uh, County, obviously. Um, and uh, uh, I, I just wanted to ask you if uh, the importance of having a headquarters in a community is very real. And a lot of people don't understand the importance of, of having a headquarters operated in a community uh, because it brings higher paying jobs, does it not? to those communities that would otherwise not be there? Yes, and, and brings, brings new life to the community and, and people who are active in the community. And so, uh, yes, the, you know, head office jobs might on balance be, be higher paying, but I think it's the, the vigor that these people bring to the community that's uh, also a big, a big asset. Now, uh, as I understand it, you've done a number of things to recruit and retain a workforce in, in Oxford, including providing mortgages for those that work for you. Is that right? Yeah, we're not so much in the mortgage business as we are in, in an assistance program uh, where we contribute the down payment for a home, which, uh, which amounts to, uh, say, $20,000, the down payment. You know, it's hard for young people to collect that first 20000 together. If they can get the down payment, then they can get a mortgage and they can move on. And so, so what we've done with, with 60 individuals is we've created, we've provided the down payment, and then we write that off over 10 years. And, and if they leave within three years, they have to pay it back. If they leave after four years, they get 40% credit and so on. If they leave after seven years, they get a 70% credit. But this allows especially young people, but also other people, to get the down payment. And, and by now, we've been at this. We, we have 60 people who have participated. And Don, I might add that that the concept of this was to support a new high school. We had lobbied uh, Dr. Ham at the time was the premier. And I said to Dr. Ham, we're trying to build a business in Oxford, but we need a school to go with it. And so I always refer to it as Dr. Ham's school because we did get a new school. And then in, in our innovative thinking, we said, now how are we gonna get more children into the school? So, in fact, this school that's a P to 12 has actually grown in student numbers, and partly because we've had this, this housing program, there's not an empty house in Oxford. So, uh, so it helps the school. Indirectly, it helps our business. 
And uh, I think it's very unique. It's innovative, and we're proud of it. Uh, it's just a fantastic program, uh, John, mm. and congratulations on doing that. Uh, there must be other things that you, you focus on in terms of retention of employees and other uh, programs that you have. Do you, do you want to talk about any of those? Yeah, well, one of the things we've done, not so much about retention, but a contribution to education, is we created last year a scholarship for every student that graduates from Oxford High School, gets a $3,000 scholarship, to university or a $2,000, I would like to call them bursaries rather than scholarship because everybody gets it. So if you go to community college, you get 2,000, you go to university, you get 3,000, and that's for for the life of your, your program. So if it's a, a university degree and it's four years, you, you'll get this for four years if you're passing your courses. So it means that every student is encouraged to, to take some some education beyond high school. So that's a, that's separate from retaining employees, but I think it it brings some real value to to the children of the area. Well, it's certainly a big contribution to the community for sure. No no, no right. doubt about that. Um uh, you you've mentioned it before about uh, uh, being a little harder to recruit um, people to the area. I, I would imagine that that would be true, especially for senior level managers. I mean, the Sobeys went through this uh, in Stellarton for years and years. Uh, are you doing special things to attract senior level people? No, we, we of course, it's a challenge to attract senior employees, but, but we would say that it's a bigger challenge just to man the, the production lines in, in our factory. We have... Uh, I asked our HR people, One, the only thing I did in preparation for this was try and get myself briefed on all the things that we do to attract employees. And and so if I could just take w- one minute on this, for instance, we have 20 East Indian uh, full-time employees that came out of the University of Cape Breton. We bring in 50 people from the Acadian Peninsula for August through until the end of November. We have uh, people here from Syria, uh, South Korea. Uh, We're bringing in 20 people from the Philippines. Uh, We always have 10 or 12 university students in general. And so we're working all the time in many different facets to to bring people to to the area, to the company, and some of them stay, some of them move on after seasonal work, but uh, it's a full-time job manning this uh, factory, but, but that's true now in Atlantic Canada. And so, you know, credit to the government who are developing programs to bring people in, and we need that. Uh, I'm glad to hear about that. I'm going to ask you a little bit more about uh, immigration in a second. Um, Oxford Foods have have changed a lot over the years, going from a mostly seasonal operation to a year-round operation. So my understanding, your decision to invest heavily in cold storage facilities was key to becoming a year-round operation. How hard was it for you to, to obtain financing to support that investment? Well, quite a challenge. And and in fact, we would not be here w- without the uh, provincial government loan agencies. 
And, and you know, every time the government changed through my long career, I'd have to re-educate the new minister of industry as to why it was important to have these loan agencies. You know, I was a director of one of the large commercial banks, uh, and I can understand why lending to, to a frozen food business in rural Nova Scotia, it doesn't really fit their appetite because... In fact, when they might make loans, they always say, well, if this company goes broke, how can we can realize our security? And, and of course, a, a frozen food plant in Oxford that went broke, not easy for the commercial bank to, to get, get their money back. So uh, there's a real role for the province to play. In fact, just about every jurisdiction in North America, all the states, all the provinces, have a loan agency, and, and, and this agency should be aimed at manufacturing and maybe tourism, areas where it's hard to get commercial loans. So every jurisdiction in North America has this except Nova Scotia. T Nova Scotia has, has canceled that program, and I say Oxford Frozen Foods wouldn't be here without the lending agencies. Michelin wouldn't be here and a lot of others, and because they all benefit from the access to capital, not subsidies, but, but money that was made available. So a big challenge over the years to, uh, to raise the money to invest. We continually, we started in 1968, and almost every year after that, we had an expansion program of some kind, We'd have to go to the province. We'd have to explain why it was important, why they should be in this business. And I don't know how many ministers I've educated on this, but a lot. But but I failed <laughs> with the most recent administration, where where we don't we've given up on on lending money to to industry and manufacturing, which is a real detriment to rural Nova Scotia because it's rural Nova Scotia that benefits from manufacturing. Manufacturing doesn't really exist in the, in the metro areas. It's, it's in rural Nova Scotia. Well, that's an excellent, uh, excellent point. Uh, give us an idea of the scope of your food operations to, today compared with your starting uh, processing um, blueberries in the early days. You, you, obviously, you're, I think you gave me some numbers the other day. They were, out, they were really right. startling. So when we started, we were in blueberries only. Uh, so just as an aside, aside from blueberries today, we're the second largest carrot processor in North America. We do 50, 60, 70 million pounds of diced, sliced carrot sticks. For If you buy a carrot muffin, muffin it probably had, had shredded carrots that we produced and froze. Uh, and then in addition to that, we've been doing onion rings for McCain Foods for 45 years. But the blueberry area is where our biggest growth. Our factory was designed originally to do 2 million pounds, 2 million pounds a year. And today we do 5 to 6 million pounds a day. So we've grown these factories immensely. We have the largest freezing tunnels perhaps in the world because we need this big capacity because we're seasonal. We have to freeze these blueberries in 30 to 35 days. So we need humongous capacity. 
and then we try to use that capacity to do carrots on other items. And so we've grown tremendously. Uh, we're farming 40,000 acres on our own land. I mean, that's a big farm operation if you look at the different areas. And, and, and we're known, I'd like to tell the story that my son Matthew is introducing blueberries in China. And China apparently had done some work and they said to him, but can you provide Oxford quality? <laughs> and he said, well, we are Oxford, but, but the, throughout the world, the standard is Oxford quality. So that was a, a bit of a backhanded compliment. <laughs> oh, a great compliment. Yeah. Uh, you have been a champion of rural development for a long time. Uh, what recommendations would you make uh, to other rural communities to replicate the kinds of success that you've had in Oxford? Well, of course, you have to start with, with the entrepreneurs. And when I travel around Nova Scotia, I used to do a tour visiting our cable systems in different towns. Every time I was in a town, I would say, now, who's the entrepreneur in this town? Who's the entrepreneur in this village? There's entrepreneurs throughout every town and village in Atlantic Canada. So what we have to do are have government policies that encourage those people. And I don't mean giving money away, but, but make it easy for them to work through the red tape and the permits. Uh, also, if it's in manufacturing or tourism, in those two areas, we need a lending agency that, that will help. And, and, you know, you don't have to lose money. If you lend money to a good, well-established entrepreneur in, in rural area of Nova Scotia, you can figure out how to get your money back. That's not a risk. So we, we, need, we need lending agencies. But in addition to that, we need infrastructure. We need schools. And for instance, in Oxford now, some of our employers employees are getting together with other community leaders and, and we're looking at a community center that'll have a daycare and a gymnasium and maybe some office space. So, uh, and, and local and some citizen, local citizens, the town council gave up on the local rink. So some of our people along with other town citizens got together and ran the rink on a nonprofit basis. So you need infrastructure in these communities to attract people to the town. So you have to continually uh, try and have an environment that's friendly for, for your employees. Uh, so there are a lot of barriers for rural communities. So you've mentioned a few of them. Are there, are there other things that, uh, uh, I don't know, government policy could, could uh, uh, address that would help uh, rural communities? You mentioned the lending thing, obviously, but are there other, other policies as well that would be helpful? Uh, Look, I, th I think the Department of Industry could, could um, provide a, a, a hand up a little bit. You know, if, if a local guy's trying to get started, they might lead them as to the directions they can go, lead them through the red tape. I, I, extension workers, we would call it in agriculture, that... Uh, you know, we used to have in this province an extension department that would send people out to help farmers to grow strawberries or blueberries and so on. So I think we could, the Department of Industry could have extension workers that work 
and and pat the people on the back and say you're doing a great job and encourage it because in society in Canada today uh, we've moved away from from productivity and economic development uh, i heard david dodge a former deputy minister of finance just within the last three or four days say since 1915 our investment and manufacturing has dropped dramatically. And he was talking about the new budget, how we have to have some policies, faster write-offs and so on. So, uh, you know, it, it's not rocket science. We sit in, in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia and PEI, we sit alongside of 250 million people in the United States who have money, who wanna buy our goods and services, so we have to be innovative and find out what they want, what they need. And, and, and I think of Sweden. Sweden didn't give up on manufacturing. They've had automobiles and all kinds of sophisticated manufacturing because they have Europe just south of them. Well, we have the United States, the greatest consuming economy in the world. And, and there isn't any excuse for us not to be uh, trying to serve that market. Thank you. Uh, as you know, Atlantic Canada has an aging population and workforce and will need to attract newcomers to the region to fill the many jobs that will be needed to continue to grow the economy here. About 80% of immigrants to Atlantic Canada end up in the six largest urban communities. Uh, what can urban rural communities do to attract and retain immigrants in their communities? Yeah, this is, this is quite a challenge. We've had, we've had the experience where we've brought uh, Asians to Oxford, and before long they're moving to Amherst because there's more, there's a why, and there's more more social activity and more infrastructure, and so. But we don't consider that moving away. That's only 20 minutes from us. But on the other hand, uh, if if we want to have people in these communities, we have to provide these services, and so. Uh, you know, there's been a tendency to consolidate schools and consolidate everything you want to talk about. And, and if you think about the very rural communities, the first thing they do is lose their school, and then they lose their post office. Then the, the, the corner store that had a gas tank and, and provided service and, and to fill up your car, all of a sudden, their bulk storage tank has proved to be unfriendly environmentally. It takes a quarter of a million dollars to replace it. So you lose, you lose your gas tank, you lose your school, you, you lose. Then the corner store goes. Pretty soon, the community goes. Right. So, so you know, we can. I was traveling in northern New Brunswick, and I had with me one of my. I have an advisory board, and I had a very sophisticated Canadian, we'd say upper Canadian, and as we drove through rural New Brunswick, couldn't understand how it was supported, nice homes. And I said, you know, a school classroom in, in Oxford or in Trackady, New Brunswick, doesn't cost any more than one in Halifax, probably less. And so, you know, there's... So many people think that providing infrastructure in rural areas is expensive. Uh, 
and a lot of that's a, a mental problem. I saw us close our local school in my community, and so then we put them all on a bus and take them to Oxford, and and you know the infrastructure cost in Oxford just as much as it was in Collingwood. So you have to be innovative on that, and I, and I understand if the students disappear, that's one thing, but but we have to continually work on the infrastructure in these communities. You know, uh, I've been uh, promoting the economic hub strategy for a long time, um, and it's really built around supporting rural communities by having nearby urban areas um, growing. Uh, one of the problems that we've had in, in Atlantic Canada is that we've had urban areas like Amherst actually lose population, not gain population over the last number of years. And uh, in, in, in some respects, what you're doing in Oxford is is the reverse of that because you're creating an economic hub on your own with your with your company there. I just wonder uh, what you think about the idea of, of, of trying to get economic hubs uh, established in Nova Scotia as a way of looking at the assets in each of the regions of the province a little bit more uh, sophisticatedly, I suppose, develop a strategy that takes care of, uh, takes advantage of those assets. And you would be one of those assets, for instance, in the, in the Amherst sort of economic hub. Uh, what do you think about that idea? I think your hub, uh, we've talked about this in the past, your hub idea is fine as long as it doesn't eliminate good entrepreneurs who are outside of the hub. Uh, so if Amherst is the hub, and you say, well, Oxford doesn't count because Amherst is the hub, but there's two good entrepreneurs, or maybe in Tatamagush there's a good entrepreneur, but there are long ways from a hub. So, so I would start on the basis that it's about entrepreneurship, that, that entrepreneurship, I would say, has built the country, and so we have to continually grow the entrepreneurship. But but if if we can do things in specific areas that will help those entrepreneurs provide better services, uh, you know, we run a business in very rural Maine, and one of the challenges there is we're an hour and a half to to the nearest repair shops. Right. You know, we're in Cherryfield, Maine, and it's a long ways to Bangor. When you're in Oxford, you're 20 minutes to Amherst. 45 minutes to Truro. So, so if we need electric motors, we need vehicles fixed or anything. We're, we're, you know, there are some hubs close by. Yeah. So, so uh, don't make the hubs too far apart. Yeah. <laughs> because the the areas around them need uh, need support. Well, uh, you know, uh, there are. I I I would say there is eight hubs in Nova Scotia that uh, are within a 30-minute drive for 90-plus percent of the population. Right. And so, you know, one of, the, uh, one of the challenges that we have is to maintain services to people uh, in, a, in an efficient way. So there are some services that can be uh, amalgamated in those, in those centers that, that serve uh, all the rural communities within a reasonable commute. Um, so that's one of the things that I've been advocating. Right. Anyway, uh, John, like, uh, 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 I want to thank you for this uh, opportunity to talk to you. I think we've learned a lot about uh, you and the Bragg Group of Companies. 
uh, as you know, I've been encouraging you for a while to have your story written. I understand, and I'm delighted to learn that a new book will be published about your career, written by Donald Savoie. Um, and uh, what will the book be called, and uh, when, will it, when will it be available? Well, Donald uh, approached me about writing this book, and, and we've had a career of trying to have a low profile. Uh, this is... Uh, to protect family members primarily. We don't need a high profile. And, and so, but Donald is a great economist. He's a big supporter of rural uh, maritimes, rural Atlantic Canada. So he said the book is going to be about entrepreneurship, not about me. But the title is The Rural Entrepreneur, John Bragg. So, but it's about entrepreneurship. It's not it's it's not a gossipy type of book that's about my family and me, but it's about my experiences as an entrepreneur, and and it's dedicated to we would say to to the future of entrepreneurs who are the future of the Maritimes. So uh, uh, it's he's through with the work. It's at the publisher. It'll come out. Uh, I think he said in July. I'm not sure, but. Well, I'll be one of the first to read it because I think stories like the one that you have to tell are important for younger generations to understand what the opportunities are in our region. And you're a great example of uh, the success of, of entrepreneurs in our, in our region. So uh, thank you very much for taking the time for this podcast and sharing your insights with, uh, with us, John. I very much appreciate it. Don, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Insights on the Huddle Podcast Network, hosted by Don Mills and David Campbell. Mark Legere and Sharice Letson helped produce this episode, and you could subscribe by searching for Huddle Insights on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And we care about what you think, so please give the show a rating and a review. Don and David will be back again next week.